Welcome to week eight in our summer series where we've been exploring the icons of our faith. Now, this is the second last week, and we're going to look at some of the weirdest and strangest images we've got in our whole movement. I don't know if, if you've had this experience, but I have, as I've been to churches all around the world in different museums and looked at older Christian books. I was always so confused. Here's an example. On old Bibles, they always had winged eagles and oxes and lions and angel-looking men, maybe, connected to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I was like, what's up with that? And then I'd go to grand cathedrals and go to older churches. Now, you might not know this, but in most older churches, there's a, the same setup. You've got the pulpit, usually on the left, where the preaching happens. You've got the communion table in the middle, and you've got this other sort of pulpit or lectern on the right. That's where they did the Bible reading for the week. And as I went to all of them, I was still confused because that ox and that lion and that eagle and that weird-looking guy were either on one pulpit or both of them. And I was like, well, what is that? And does it even matter? And is it even Christian? And where does it come from? Well, these reared images are incredibly helpful. For we who are Christians, they're going to really bring this home. And for you who might not be Christians or are sort of Christian, this is going to help you understand the Christian faith in a brand new way. Now, these weird images are called tetramorphs, just means four forms. Okay, our wild journey begins in the call of a prophet named Ezekiel. Ezekiel, you might not know this, was a Jewish priest, and he actually was deported to Babylon. Now, he's far from the promised land, far from the temple worship that he used to be involved in. Everything is lost. God's people had sinned so terribly that God had judged them. God's judgment was real on his people. And then he had deported them because of their sin. He'd said this was going to happen. And then suddenly, this is amazing, suddenly God reveals himself in an overwhelming way. God meets this priest beyond every place God had met Jewish people before. See, remember again, Ezekiel is living with Jewish exiles, and they were exiles because of God's judgment on them and because of their sin. And yet amazingly, because God is still loved, he doesn't show up in the temple. He doesn't show up on Jewish soil. He meets this priest, Ezekiel, on pagan soil in a place God was never supposed to show up and reminds him that God's love is still there and real. That could be the whole sermon right there. Well, now, here's how it goes down. It says in Ezekiel 1.1, in my 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was still among the exiles at the Kabar River, the heavens were open and I saw visions of God. Verse 4, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. Okay, I've preached this a hundred times. Let me do it again. The cloud is always key. This is the Shekinah glory of God, the very presence of God. This very experience happened with Moses when he got the Ten Commandments. This exact experience happened by the Jews when they were in the wilderness on their way to the Promised Land because they were led by the presence of God by day, pillar of cloud, and by night, pillar of what? Fire. This exact thing happened, what? When Moses dedicated the tabernacle where God would be worshipped. It reads in Exodus 40, 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Generations later, Solomon comes along, builds the Jewish temple. When he dedicates it, what happens? 1 Kings 8, 10, The cloud filled the temple of the Lord. 
This is the same light and fire that came down during the story of Elijah when he confronts the false prophets and consumes the the altar in 1 Kings 18 on Mount Carmel. This is the same glory that shocked the shepherds when Jesus and his birth was announced by the angels. This is seen when Matthew, Mark, and sorry, when Peter, James, and John are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and this glory shows up. When the church is born in Acts 2, how does it start? With tongues of what? Oh, fire. This is the same light and glory that Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, looks up and sees before he's killed and Jesus is at the center. This is the same light and glory that knocked Saul down and he became Paul. This is God's presence. Now the question is, what's in and around that unique, shocking presence of God? Well, that becomes clear in Ezekiel's encounters. Ezekiel 1.5, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Verse 8, under their wings, their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings. Their faces looked like, ready, this. Each of the four had a face of a human being. And on the right side, each had a face of a lion. And on the left side, the face of an ox. And also had the face of an eagle. And then it says in verse 12, each one went straight ahead wherever the spirit would go they would go without turning as they went. These are angels. (laughs) These are cherubim. They actually have similarities to the angels that are actually on the Ark of the Covenant. They live in and around God's very presence, and actually they carry God's throne. We see this in Psalm 18.10. God mounted the cherubim and he flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. Now in the ancient world, Every single one of these is the highest expression of their kind. One person just pointed out like this. The lion is the highest undomesticated animal, the wild animal. The ox in ancient mind was the highest domesticated animal. The eagle, the highest bird. And then, of course, think about it. Human beings, according to the Bible, are made in the image of who? God. We're at the top of God's creation. We're the highest height of the creation. So here's the point. These four angels are a reflection of God and the height of his creation. They're like the four corners of the earth. By the way, these are real. These aren't just some figment, LSD. No, 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 no. These are real things taking place in the heavenlies. Now, this is not the only place we see them. As we come to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Jesus' best friend John sees a variation of what Ezekiel saw. Revelation 4, 6, in the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, and in front, in, in their front and in their back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second was like a ox, and the third had the face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and covered with all eyes all around, even under its wings, and day and night they never stopped saying, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you all said, amen. Now, do you notice that these shocking, weird, wild, very powerful angelic beings don't exalt themselves? Don't talk about their own power. They live in, under, and around and point to God. They exalt God. They're all about the one who they're surrounding. Now, here's the connection. In the New Testament, who's always at the center of the cloud? Who's always the giver of the fire? Who's always in the middle of the glory? Again, who did Peter, James, and John 
see in the Mount of Transfiguration when the cloud came down? Jesus. When Stephen was already killed and looked up and saw the glory of God as a Jew, who was in the center of God's glory? Jesus. Who did Saul say was at the center of that blinding light? Jesus. And so we come to these wild, weird animals, these angels that show up on Bibles and churches and it all makes sense. See, the early church, I mean the really early church, chose these four angels to represent the Gospels in the New Testament. It's like what the angels represent upstairs in the heavens, the Gospels do for us down here. From Irenaeus, who lived just after John the Baptist, all the way to Augustine, they said the parallels between these angels and the Gospels were amazing, shocking, and helpful. So the eagle and the lion and the ox and the human are attached to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why? Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John best reflect who's at the center of God's glory. They reveal Jesus. So the man was connected or symbolized Matthew. Why? Because Matthew begins with a genealogy, with Jesus. His focus is Jesus becoming human, incarnation, God becoming one of us. Jesus is humanity. The lion was connected to Mark. Why? Because Mark is all about Jesus' victory and Jesus' king and Jesus' powerful resurrection. He has the power like a lion. One wrote this about Luke. Luke gets the ox because his gospel focuses on the sacrificial character of Jesus' death. And the ox has always been one of the main sacrificial animals. And also, in Luke's depiction depiction of Jesus' birth, the nativity, the ox and the donkey witness his birth. John gets the eagle because John's gospel focuses from heaven's view. Who's Jesus from upstairs? We get the focus on his divinity, that Jesus actually is God himself. See, remember, to see Jesus is to see God in his fullness. And the four gospels give us the picture of Jesus fully. One outlined it like this way. Imagine a car accident took place near the intersection where you live, and there were four witnesses. The first witness is a medical doctor. What is he going to talk about? The injuries, the accident that way. Uh, Witness two, insurance agent, going to talk about the idea of liability of the accident. Witness three, it's a police person. They're going to report on legality and safety issues. Uh, Witness four, a repairman. They're going to talk about the damage done to the vehicles. Each of the witnesses is giving details that are consistent with their respective purpose. They don't contradict each other, but their reports complement each other. By putting all four of their accounts together, you've got a fuller, more complete picture of what happened in the accident. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us the same basic information about Jesus's life, but from four different viewpoints, and they're writing to four very distinct different audiences. Okay, so let me break this down real quick. And I guarantee by the end of this, this will help you as a Christian and also help you if you're not. Let's start with Matthew. Remember, Matthew gets the guy, the man. Matthew 1.1 reads like this. This is the genealogy about Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, you might know, know this. The name Jesus means God saves. It's a shortened form of Joshua. Messiah is Christ, anointed one, promised deliverer, fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And then notice, son of David, son of Abraham, humanity, humanity. King David was the greatest Jewish king that ever lived, helped write the Psalms, a man after God's own heart. And Jesus not only literally comes from this line, but actually he fulfills all the promises given to David. During David's reign, Samuel the prophet said this to David. Listen closely. 
2 Samuel 7:11. God declares to you that God himself will establish a house for you, David. And when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. And he's the one who's going to build a house for my name. That's Solomon. And then there's this phrase, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, Solomon died, and so did his kids. But Jesus comes and fulfills. His kingdom never ends. He's part of the line of David. And also, Jesus is the son of Abraham. See, this is beautiful. Abraham was called by God, and out of Abraham, the Jewish people are established, but the promise was that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. How has that been done? Because Jesus is the savior of the world. But humanity, Jesus' real flesh and blood, his connection to history, is Matthew's point. Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Luke, in his account, talking about this moment, when Gabriel talks to Mary, says, The Holy Spirit will be upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One who will be born will be called the Son of God. Now, overshadows that critical word. That's the same word used again and again in the Old Testament. This delicate language removes some idea that God is mating with this girl. That's totally pagan. No, just like the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1-2 to bring forth creation. Just like the Holy Spirit overshadowed the tabernacle and overshadowed the temple, so the cloud has come to reside here in Mary. And, And Jesus is found. This is what we call the virgin conception and the virgin birth. And by the way, this is a non-negotiable part of the faith if you're a Jesus follower. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, there's a good chance you might not be a Christian. See, God has come for us and he is without sin. And he is really human. He's not adopted and sort of took over a human body, nor does he appear human, but really not. He's fully human and fully God. The virgin birth allows for Jesus to be truly human without sin and yet be one of us. I've quoted this so many times before, but it's so good. One wrote this, Christians believed believe that we're saved only through Jesus. So what does that actually imply? Well, it's obvious that Jesus is a man, a human being like all of us. But if he's just a man like the rest of us, he shares our need for salvation, redemption. In other words, he can't redeem us. He's part of the problem. He's not the solution to the problem. So there has to be some essential difference between Jesus and every other human being if Jesus indeed is to be redeemer. After all, Christianity has always insists that Jesus is the solution to the problem, not part of the problem. On the other hand, if Jesus is just God and God alone, he's got no point of contact with us. He can't relate to those who need the help. His humanity actually provides the point of contact. And so we arrive at the conclusion that Jesus must be human and God if he's to redeem us. And see, that's the point. That's what the virgin birth allows. That's why Matthew includes it. Okay, so he gets the man. Then we come to Mark, and Mark gets the lion. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God. We talked about this earlier in the series. The word gospel uh, means good tidings, great news. This word was used by Romans to celebrate, for example, the birth of emperors, and they would declare it was good news for the Roman Empire. It's a past tense thing. For Jewish people, the word gospel was a religious term that meant future salvation. For we as Christians, gospel takes on both meanings. It's anchored and overshadowed in the past. Jesus has come, lived, died, rose from the dead. He's present with us now, and future salvation is coming, the gospel. And this good news, notice, is not found in a religious movement or a new moral system 
or a new invention, or in a political revolution, or in the idea of justice alone, or in science, or in technology, or in philosophy, but in a person. His name was and is Jesus. The good news is not a message, it's a message about a living person. That's why Mark starts his gospel by saying, rely, adhere, connect to the gospel about Jesus, who's the Son of God. Jesus is the good news. And Mark, by his names and titles, right in that verse, already pushes his reader into a corner to see that Jesus is more than just a man. Jesus Christ isn't just a good person, not just a prophet, not just a sage, not just a religious leader, revolutionary, historic person of significance. He is the Son of God. And all of this comes into focus in the very first chapter. Very intentionally, you may have never seen this before, Mark is the only one who starts Jesus' ministry with dealing with demons. The great king, the Lion of Judah, has come to destroy the other lion that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. And so as one writes about Mark, the focus of Mark is to engage us, the reader, in the unfolding story of Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, so that we too might be caught up in his message and be challenged to believe that demonic powers and brutal rulers can not ultimately triumph over Jesus or even us. In other words, Jesus is king. Jesus is all-powerful. Jesus is the lion. Then we come to Luke. 400 years of silence. From Malachi on, God says very little. God doesn't even seem to be that present. And then the silence is broken. And where is the silence broken? In the temple where sacrifices take place. It reads in Luke 1.5, there was a priest named Zechariah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Let me just bring this home again. In the ancient mind, being barren was a sign of divine punishment and a source of great shame. What sin have you committed so this happened to you? Luke also points out they're, they're old, so it's doubly impossible. And yet, this is why the description of them is here, because no one can lay the charge at their feet that they were sinful or not loving God, because actually they were very devout people. The barrenness is about to become the place of a miracle. Once, Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, by this time in history, there are so many priests. Priests only serve two weeks a year in the temple. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience, though, for Zechariah. This would be the highest point in his life because actually he gets to do a very special, profound act most never get to do. And it says in verse 10, And when the time for burning incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So the time comes, watch this, Zechariah goes into the holy place. The people remain outside. He's going to get closest he has ever been to God at that moment. He's just outside of the Holy of Holies. The only person who can go in there is the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. But he's just outside there, and he's burning the incense, and he's praying, and the people outside are praying. And, and, and if you know this, there's a table. It's set. The candles are lit, and, and, and the incense is now wafting in that room, and the smell would be strong, and the smoke is rising because incense represents the prayers of God's people. And then the 400 years of silence is broken in the place of sacrifice. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at his right hand, at the right side of the altar of incense, and Zechariah saw him. He was startled, gripped with fear, and the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. 
Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. And he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Why would many rejoice at John's birth? Well, A, it's a miracle that God has done this, but it's deeper than that, because John becomes John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is going to herald and point people to Jesus. And we are part of the remnant that is actually celebrating and rejoicing about John the Baptist's birth 2,000 years later because John the Baptist leads the world to Jesus. It says in verse 16, many of people, many of the people of Israel will, will be brought back to the Lord, their God. How does he do this? Because John leads people to Jesus 30 years later from this moment or within this moment. How does John introduce Jesus to the world? Look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See, Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, will come and he'll deal with our sin. The ox, a sacrificial animal of the Old Testament, just like the lamb, finds its full meaning in Jesus. Well, lastly, we come to John, and the focus is on Jesus being God. That's why the eagle is chosen. And John does not start with Jesus' birth or stepfather or mother or genealogies or, or si times of silence. He starts before there was a before. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. These words should throw all of us back to the very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Out of nothing, God creates all things. And yet now, it says at that moment... The Word was present, and the Word was with God. It actually reads like this. The Word was turned towards God. The Word was beside God. The Word is distinct from God, and yet there is diamondism and intimacy and relationship. And by the way, if you read John 1, the Word is Jesus. But not only is the Word Jesus towards God, beside God, then here's the shocking statement. The Word is God, was God. In Greek, it reads in the reverse. God was the Word. Jesus Christ, the one that the angels heard about, the one the star pointed to, the one the shepherds came and found, the one that did all that stuff, the one who was wrapped in swaddling clothes before the manger and before creation, Jesus was with God and was God. He has always been because he's God. John brings this home by summarizing this in verse 2. Uh, the Word was with God in the beginning. Jesus was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing has been made that has been made. John, are you saying, hold on, that the guy we read about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who was born, had parents, grew up, dad was a carpenter, the same guy who healed and cast out demons and taught and was executed on a cross and rose from the dead, created reality? Yes. God the Father, through Jesus, created all things. Jesus was not created, and then he created everything else. Jesus has never been created. He has always been and always will be because he's God. That's why as Pastor Sam preached on, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Okay, that's interesting. So here's the question. Why does any of this matter? <laughs> like, for real? Well, if you're a Christian, brand new or long-term, why does this matter to you? Well, just like those angels that fly close to God, the Gospels are our doors to seeing Jesus clearly and fully. Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is the great sacrifice to deal with sin. He's the victorious king that conquered sin, death, and the demonic. If you don't read all four of these together, you will end up with a wrong form of Jesus, a twisted Jesus, 
a Jesus that suits us more than who he actually is. It's so important that you read upstairs and downstairs together to get a full understanding of who Jesus is. There are so many people who actually hijack Jesus politically, hijack Jesus theologically, hijack Jesus because of the temperature or the mode of the day. No, let the gospel speak. Let those four animals point you to who he really is. But more, some of you are like, well, okay. How does this help me on Wednesday? How does this help me as I'm walking my baby in the park? How does this help me as I'm an online meeting? How does this help me when I'm back at work? What's the takeaway? Well, it's probably not what you're going to think. It's worship. You're like, what? It's praise. Just like those four angels worship God 24-7. They praise Him for who He is and, and what He's about. Remember, by the way, here's the definition. Praise is a response to the worthiness of someone. See, the application of this message this week is not what you get or what you change. It's who, it's who you know and what you give Him. This is better to give than receive. This sermon, this idea should lead us in your devotion life, in, in your walk with Jesus moments, to literally worship Jesus and say, you are who you claim. And the, the, the Jesus of faith is the Jesus of history. You are the same Jesus in the Bible. And you should literally say to Jesus, I worship you as the lion. And I worship you, I, I, I worship you, right? As the great sacrifice. And I worship you as God. And I worship you as human. And I worship you as great victor. And I worship you as great sacrifice. The more you worship Jesus, the more your view of life will change. The more you worship Jesus, the more things will become clear and other things will grow dim, as the old song says. What's your takeaway this week? Worship Jesus. Worship Him in His beauty. You don't have to be deeply emotional. You don't have to raise your hands all the time, but just thank Him that He's fully God, fully human. He's the great sacrifice and He's the great victory. Like, that's so incredibly important. For lots of you, again, who join us, you're not a Christian. Maybe you're a Muslim or a Hindu or maybe you're a Buddhist or maybe you're Jewish. Maybe you're a spiritual. <laughs> maybe you're agnostic or atheist or, or maybe you're Christian and it's an ethnic thing or it's a history thing, but it's not a personal thing. What does this do for you? What is God saying to you in this moment? Well, the greatest truth of our faith, again, is a person. Fully God, fully human, God in flesh, perfect sacrifice, victory. It's all about Him. And what this does is it reminds you it's not about you. And by the way, that's great news. As you've seen, there's nothing that He's done that you can actually accomplish yourself. There's nothing that can actually resolve our spiritual condition. You can't be good enough. You can't work hard enough. Your gifts aren't going to bridge the gap. Any experience you have is not going to cover up your condition. It doesn't matter how profoundly spiritual you are, deeply religious you are, or secular you are. Other people's opinions don't actually change your scenario before God. Spirituality doesn't bridge the gap that's there. See, it always takes someone else to come in to do these things for us. It's like we're covered in dirt and we actually need someone to bathe us. It's like we need electricity, but we actually don't have the cord or the plug or the socket, and someone needs to install that and put it in for us. And, and here's the point. There is only one human being out of billions and billions that have lived, will live, or will ever live that actually has proved that he can save us from our problems because he's overcome the terrible things that keep bringing us down. Sin, selfishness, and death. In other words, you want to give real peace a chance? 
He's the one. Again, let me quote a fellow pastor. The gospel of freedom says that only through Jesus can we be brought back into friendship with God and then with each other. Because he takes away the sin that separates us. Only through Jesus can we be brought back into God's original intentions for us as human beings. To worship God rather than ourselves. To serve the common good. To make culture again. And through his grace, help to right what has been made wrong through sin. See, in other words, this, this, this is the point. You can't get peace without him. Not real peace. You cannot fully change culture without him. You can't actually fully deeply reconcile to others without him. You personally can't experience power that is stronger than guilt and shame without him. Even all the good counseling you've done will not undo shame and guilt like he can. You can't experience forgiveness at its core like he can give you. You can't get to know God personally unless the lion that has overcome death, sin and Satan, is in your life. Unless you meet the real Jesus because his sacrifice covers your sin to allow you to come back home anyway. There there is no other door. Jesus said it like this. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Why? Because he is God. And also he's the sacrifice. And he's the the one who overcomes. He's the revelation. He's our point of contact. He's our everything. What do you do with Jesus? So wherever you might be, let's just take a moment and let's just do this together. For we who are followers of Jesus in this moment, Thank you for these wild, weird angels that one day we'll see (laughs) that always sing to you, point to you, and reveal who you are. And thank you for the gift of the gospel. So many of us, by the way, who have grown up as Christians have never stopped and thank you for the actual Bible. Thank you for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Actually, thank you for the whole book. But here's our prayer. Three things. One, for we who are Christians, lead us to the true Jesus. Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus out of the scriptures to this church. Guard us from heresy. Guard us from false views of Jesus. Wrong Jesus. Help us to walk with the true Jesus. Number two, we worship Jesus in this moment. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that you came for us and you took on human flesh. Thank you. We acknowledge you've always been God, that you're holy and and love. Just thank you for all of this. And thank you. You have victory over death, sin, and the demonic. And it's true for us. We just, we worship you. And then again, if you're not a person of faith, that is a Christian, or you are a person of faith but not a Christian yet, or you're from another background, and you want to experience Jesus, this is what you pray. You say, Jesus, I need your help. (laughs) I am going to die. I have sin in my life. It's real. And there's darkness I can't overcome. So Jesus, I say I need your forgiveness. I need your work. So I need you like the lion to forgive my sin, to throw out the devil and, and beat death for me. Jesus, I need like that sacrifice to cover the sin because I don't, I can't pay off the mortgage. And I need you, Jesus, fully human and fully God, to bring me home. I turn from my sins. I believe you died and rose from the dead. And I say yes to you. And I actually want to walk with you now for the rest of my life. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, who's revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Amen. I encourage you. No matter who you are or where you're coming from, spend time in Matthew and Mark, Luke, and John. 
see the beauty, the richness, the, the offense, the power, the amazingness of Jesus. You'll never be disappointed.